Hey, today's Total Soccer Show is sponsored by Fubo TV. You've heard us talk about Fubo before. It is our favorite internet TV service provider if you want to watch some soccer. I recommend the family plan where three people can watch Fubo TV at once, even if they're in three different locations. You also get 30 hours of cloud DVR. And of course, NBC Sports is included on the national feed. So if you want to catch the final weekend of the Premier League, you need to get Fubo TV before this Sunday. And we have a great offer for you, a seven-day free trial. If you go to fubo.tv slash TSS, you can start your seven-day free trial. You won't regret it. It's fubo.tv slash TSS. Start your free trial today. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by the man who taught Christian Pulisic how to make an entrance. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. <laughs> Mine was um, be slightly overweight and uh, don't run at defenders and embarrass them. And he took the opposite approach. So in that sense, yes, I guess I did help him figure it out. <laughs> he George Costanded it. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so we'll be talking all about Christian Pulisic's <laughs> off the bench exploits later mm. in today's show. So we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna review uh, Liverpool, Chelsea, and we're gonna review Manchester United against West Ham. But first, mm-hmm. there was a Greg Berhalter press conference. There's, Evidently, there's no games. There haven't been any games. But Berhalter um, yeah. talked to some press members um, and actually said a lot of quite substantive stuff. I think enough for us to have a good old conversation about taylor um it feels it feels as though we are not the only ones who've been missing u.s national team games and <laughs> the opportunity to ruminate upon them oh, uh, yeah. I feel like berhalter had some thoughts as well yeah <laughs> so lots of people um um reported on this press conference um i want to give a special shout out to soccer america because mm-hmm. i think they did the best and most comprehensive roundup of what what greg berhalter had to say yeah, because a lot of times the questions, and I don't mean this in a critical way, it's just the way it goes, is that a lot of questions are asked on an individual level so that the individual asking the question can then write the story about that topic. Yeah. So you'll get that question about, uh, you know, like what Tyler Adams' best position. A lot of times that is so there can be another think piece about where Ber- Berhalter sees him. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I, I appreciate Soccer America sort of giving us the distillation of a lot of those different questions so we could have a an informed idea of where, <laughs> what Berhalter is thinking. So you and I both, you know, did, did all the reading found as much information yep. as we could uh, as we could about this press conference and we've each got the things we found interesting so we're going to go back and forth taylor and discuss them and i invite mm-hmm. you sir to go first so it's like, it's like drafting right. so like this is your first pick in the how to press conference draft uh, and and yet i'm going to go with the first thing that soccer america went with uh we apparently will still get some form of the traditional hex uh it requires 10 games that means 10 dates that means five windows with the intercontinental playoff being pushed to after the world cup draw that opens up even more space so burhalter seemed to indicate that we will get probably a traditional hex maybe in an abbreviated time frame and to be fair, he didn't say, I have inside knowledge. And he did say, no. I'm sure the people at CONCACAF are working on this. So I think it's fair yes. to say that Bearhalter thinks we're still mm. going to get um, the usual hex. Yeah, and that's true. And maybe a lot of this is me, again, having not had much time to talk about the U.S. national team or much reason to do so, now digging way too deep. But, yeah. Berhalter about, but let's, let's start with facts and we'll build from there. How about that? Sure, sure. That's fair. Uh, I think for me, though, it, it, it comes from Berhalter 
doesn't really speculate on stuff, in my opinion. You don't hear him say, like, ah, it's probably going to be this way, and then he gets it wrong. So I'm guessing he's got at least a little bit of information there that makes him feel confident in his answer. But you're right. It is not yet confirmed. That just seemed to be what he thought would maybe be happening. And since we're talking about this, here's the counter-argument for those who think the hex shouldn't exist as it is, even if you have enough uh, match windows, right? It's that there were certain teams who were trying to get into the hex, and they needed more FIFA rankings points. Right. And because of the cancellation of all the games... They weren't afforded the opportunity to play in those games and try and get those extra points that would have pushed them into the hex, right? So mm-hmm. there is an argument for not doing that, not doing the hex traditionally on that basis. Of course, mm-hmm. as US fans, it kind of doesn't affect us because we're, I think, currently the second best CONCACAF team in the FIFA rankings. But I am confused, though, because uh, wasn't there talk that there would be a like a group stage thing, like similar to what Africa does, where then it's like if you win your group, you yeah. qualify, or if you win your group, you have a playoff? So yeah, does, that would was, that indicate that we're moving away from that? No, that was just a suggested proposal. Okay. But, I mean, okay. honestly, the big takeaway here, Taylor, is that we mm-hmm. still don't know what World Cup qualifying looks like. But, <laughs> but I want to know, We Darryl. do know that Greg Berhalter is thinking it might still be the Hex. All right. All right. So that, that's one thing we think we know that maybe possibly is going to be the case. <laughs> Daryl, what is the thing we definitely know? Here's the thing we definitely know. Greg Berhalter does not think it's a problem if Zach Steffen stays at Manchester City next year and is their backup goalkeeper. Um, here's, right. here's Greg Berhalter's quote. Man City is a super high level. To gain that experience for a year, to be in that training environment and have the opportunity to potentially break into that team is exciting. And I think it would be worth it. You always have to weigh if you're going to be sitting on the bench and not playing enough games. But to me, that opportunity alone is something special. Not too many players in the world get a chance to play for a club like that. And here's the thing, Taylor. I think he's swayed me very much with this with really? this two-paragraph argument. Yes. Yeah, it's such I an mean, opportunity to be around Guardiola and his coaches and the whole Man City setup. If it's one season, I mean, he does say for a year, it's it's kind of worth the trade-off trade of not playing too many games. I promise I'm not asking this in a catty way, but this has more or less been my argument about why I was okay with it. Is it simply that it's Greg Berhalter, the national team coach, saying it, and thus you're less concerned about yeah. Stefan not getting those first team chances? I think, yeah, to me, it basically ends this debate, at least mm-hmm. in the short term, right? It means that like when the first squad is selected and when we're thinking about who might be the starting keeper, we're not going to be having that conversation. The conversation won't be all, all over Twitter about, oh, well, he hasn't played for a month for Manchester mm-hmm. City. Maybe he's not the starting keeper anymore. We have it straight from Greg Berhalter's mouth that he thinks it's worth the trade-off, so it's going to be okay. And that's where, I again, I really appreciate Berhalter and the way he answers questions, because to me, that is more or less a perfect answer. He says everything you need to say there of explaining why it's okay yeah. and correctly like describing the situation of they're a top-level team in the, one of the top leagues in the world, coached by the top manager in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. So it makes sense to kind of go with that. He adds the thing about, like, you know, so, like you got to take it on a case-by-case basis or, you know, in certain situations it's not okay. Like, I think he leaves that door open, so it's then not to say, like, well, why is it okay for him and not for him? It's like, well, this is Man City and that's Fortuna Dusseldorf. It's a big difference. <laughs> so I, I I really like that answer, and I, and I really like that it means that Zach Steffen can feel kind of comfortable growing at Man City and maybe getting some minutes but also getting to spend a season with pep i'm sure lots of players would jump at that one and honestly it means that we and other uh podcasts and other writers don't have to waste our time having this debate (laughs) so uh, we still will (laughs) (laughs) well at least we'll have a more informed debate than we otherwise would Mm -hmm. have right um so what else what else did you notice from this taylor 
uh, that Tyler Adams is staying in midfield and Weston McKinney will be there running with him. Yeah. That seemed to be a, a, a big point there is that the two of them offer so much speed and mobility that he is very excited. Heberhalter is excited about the possibility of having the two of them in midfield. He didn't go into detail as to like what that pairing would look like necessarily. Uh, I think he talked a little bit about a 4-3-3 at some point, yeah. but... So to, to me, he makes very clear in this quote about Tyler Adams. He starts talking about the um, the shape, the defensive shape, especially that the U.S. had against Costa Rica um, mm-hmm. on that February 1st game. And if you go back and watch it, it's very, very different to the 4-4-2 mid block we've been playing in. It was a Liverpool style 4-3-3 defensively, right, where you have mm-hmm. um, three really mobile midfielders and they're there to sort of eat space and win the ball back. Um, rather right. than just kind of sitting there waiting to absorb pressure um, and block passing lanes like in in that four four two, and this makes sense right. to me. This is a marriage of a certain defensive style with the, the ideal people to play it in, in Adams and McKenney and presumably one other. See that that's the thing. I I think either I didn't finish or I didn't explain properly. But that was the thing that I think he didn't make clear is is that with one more midfielder who is more of a number ten, more attacking, or is that with one more midfielder who is more of a number six? That's the only thing I'm not entirely sure of. Is, is Tyler Adams being a bit more defensive, or are we still looking at Michael Bradley, Jackson Yule, or somebody else to do that role? But then you don't have the kind of Christian Pulisic number 10, which maybe Berhalter has wanted in the past. So I think that was a little bit uh, open to interpretation. In yeah, my I mean, to me, I take two things from this. I take that we're going away from having a, a number 10, especially in the Christian Pulisic mold mm-hmm. in central midfield. And we're going with more like up and down players like Adams and McKenney, because the key thing is about that defensive pressure. Right. And mm-hmm. um, he talks specifically, I've got the quote here. Um, midfielders who cover ground uh, and you can be, be and then the attacking group can be high up and create pressure on the opponent right so it's a much more proactive proactive game I also went back and looked at the starting lineup against Costa Rica February 1st it's Jackson Yule Brendan Aronson and Sebastian Lejet right so mm-hmm. it's, there's still room for a number six in there but it's worth saying that maybe Jackson Yule covers a bit more ground than Michael Bradley at this stage that is true. Although another thing I, I took away from this is is that though youth is very important, veterans are still around and not maybe not as important, but very important themselves. Uh, the quote there was, when you think about Tim Ream, Michael Bradley, Josie Alcador, those are great examples of guys that know what it's about. The door is open for these guys when they're playing well, when they're fit, because we know they can make an impact on the international level as well. Absolutely, yeah. And he also specifically said that just because there's been a lack of games lately and we might go uh, with only a couple of warm-ups straight into the hex. It doesn't mean he'll be going out of his way to call up experienced players, right? And I, for me, that means maybe guys like Fabian Johnson or Timmy Chandler, right? Mm-hmm. We've already got the core of experienced players that he mentions, right? Josie, Michael Bradley, um, and Tim Ream. I think basically he's saying there's enough experience there to, to get us through and the rest is the exciting young guys that we want to see play. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, so we could still see Michael Bradley as that number six, but I think then, again, he gave the necessary caveats of as long as they're in form and playing yeah. well and fit, then maybe they fit in. Yeah, I think I think it wasn't saying they're automatically in the, in the squad from day one. No major pronouncements like that. You spoke of uh, doors being open, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. someone asked about this because he's playing so well at MLS's back, uh, but Greg Berhalter mentioned that the door for Darlington Nagby is wide open. Right, mm-hmm. uh, Berhalter sounded actually quite excited about the idea of having Nagby in his team. Um, he also made a sort of through the media pitch to Darlington Nagby about why he might want to start playing for the U.S. men's national team again, um, which makes sense because I think he also said in there he hasn't spoken to him directly. He doesn't have any like specific plans. Yeah, but then despite not having spoken to him, gave a more or less specific plan. Yeah. I felt like yeah. So you want to hear it? He basically said yeah. one thing. He said is uh, we can push him. 
right? And uh, there's, maybe there's elements of his game that we could even take to the next level, which is really, mm-hmm. really interesting. And then he thought maybe Nagby's mindset could be, okay, this is what I really want. My goal is to play in a World Cup. I've won MLS Cups with multiple teams and I've been an MLS All-Star and I want to play in a World Cup. I missed out in 2018 and this is something I want to do. So Belter's basically um, trying to, I think, inception the thought into Darlington Nagby's head. <laughs> there's a, which, there's which a spinning top somewhere. I'm not sure why. I feel like lately I've just been thinking more about like what goes on behind the scenes with players. And it never really... like I just kind of assumed that something had happened that Nagby was disillusioned, disenfranchised with U.S. soccer, and then at the same time, you know, just enjoyed raising a family, wanted to be a family yeah. man, wanted to focus on MLS. There is that idea of, like, like a player, the first one who comes to mind is Christian Roldan, who is not never, he is never going to be your, like, yes, first choice starter, we know he's in there, but he's on that bubble. And if you feel like you're not even getting that level of look, like, you get your hopes up, you get your expectations up to be in that national team, and then it just keeps not happening. And even when you do get called up, it's like to be the third choice central midfielder if the situation like necessitates it. That would take a, a hit, right? It would be difficult, though we want to say, no, to play for your national team, to make any sort of um, appearance at that level, it is the end-all be-all. It might not be, and it might just be a continual disappointment. It was a strange realization to have, and I think a smart pitch from Greg Borhalter as to how they could help Dylan Nagby and why it might be beneficial for him yeah. to, uh, to, I guess, go through that open door. But like you said, uh, Darlington has got to want it, right? And Darlington mm-hmm. Nagby has been vocal in the past. He was on the, uh, the BSI, the podcast, um, yeah. essentially talking about, I mean, one, yeah, he values time with his family, right? So an international break. Um, is time when instead of going somewhere else and playing soccer, he can spend time with his family. And then he was also very specific about he does not enjoy going down to Central America. And <laughs> the literal thing he talked about was having to brush your teeth with water from a water bottle. He was kind of yep. like, that's just, I just don't want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think much like when Landon Donovan went on his trip to Cambodia, I feel like you've got to kind of respect it, right? You can't force mm-hmm. anyone to do anything, right? Just because he's a professional soccer player doesn't mean he has to go above and beyond and play for another soccer team beyond the one that's already paying him. Um, so I, Nagby's been very clear about why he hasn't wanted to do it, but Berhalter's saying, if you change your mind, here's what mm-hmm. we can offer you. But I'm not, I think the other thing is he's not going to go begging Darlington Nagby to please, please come back, right? But he is no. saying, the door's open. If you suddenly realize that maybe you don't want to go your whole career without playing in a World Cup when you had the chance, you can walk through that door. Yeah, and maybe you could also go with a semi-pitch of, and you won't have, uh, you very likely will not have a bunch of fans in the stands yelling negative things at you when you go on those (laughs) away trips, so there's always that. (laughs) Yes, please, yeah, please explain, Tyler. Yeah, uh, I guess Burhalter himself was talking about the possibility of there not being fans, how that was both a positive and a negative. And I really agree, though, I think for different reasons. Obviously, you don't have the sort of hostile, intimidating environment. It maybe makes it a little bit easier. But simultaneously, we have seen plenty of games, uh, specifically friendlies against CONCACAF opposition, where there isn't that atmosphere, there isn't that sort of intensity and vibe. And we have seen the U.S. sort of switch off on those occasions. The one I will always go to is that horrific friendly in Cuba that, like, you could just tell nobody wanted to be there. Yeah. And if you don't have that intense atmosphere, you would assume that it would be elevated for World Cup. I know I know that's yeah. what you're going to point out. Yeah, I mean, but... it's, it's just very different when points are on the line versus a friendly that was played for almost exclusively diplomatic reasons, right? I, I mean, yes, that is true. I would then say... 
I would ideally say yes, you get you get up for that one. But if you don't have those fans there, there is something to be said for having that sort of like, oh, I'm going to show you all. You've got to have that chip on your shoulder. You've got to want to make those those fans sad or show them like you're yelling at me the whole game. I'm going to make you pay for that. And it can be difficult if you don't have the audience and you're expecting an audience. I still would take that over <laughs> having to play all those games in such hostile settings. But it yeah. is a thing I thought about is like the negative drawback to that. I mean, there's, yeah, you've got to think of like the plastic bags full of uh, yellow mm-hmm. Liquid, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, here's the exact Berhalter quote. If you think about just traditionally going down to Central America and playing in very hostile environments, and that's completely taken away, um, that could give us an advantage. And just in case mm-hmm. anybody isn't following along, we're essentially talking about, as the Premier League and the Bundesliga have been played with no fans, we're talking about World Cup qualifying happening with mm-hmm. no fans, right? And that led to you and I... Uh, as the confederations currently exist, wondering, is the United States the team that would most benefit from not having to play in packed, angry stadiums? And I think the answer is yes. In terms of yeah. World Cup qualifying, like, yeah, sure, Germany going to France, you're always that's always going to be a historic rivalry. Same thing with the Netherlands. But it's not quite that level of hostility, hostility I don't think, for uh, any number of reasons. Uh, and there's also... Um I don't want to get too deep into this, but there's also the Mm -hmm. fact that some home games, some World Cup qualifier home games, US home fans have at least, I don't know if they were outnumbered, but they were definitely um, like out-vocaled by by sort of... uh, uh, hyphenated Americans living in that city, yeah. right? I remember the uh, the Red Bull Arena game against Costa Rica um, where we ended up losing in World Cup qualifying. I think that was an example of something that uh, may be to the US's advantage. If that stadium had just been empty, it, we, we would have been better off. Absolutely, because, yeah, like, uh, continue with the analogy. If you have the rivalry between Germany and the Netherlands, if Germany go to the Netherlands, they're going to have, you know, a, an angry crowd. But when they go home, they're going to have that very positive crowd. Yeah. And I think, yeah, to your point, the United States, like, at best is having a mostly positive, mostly in favor of them crowd. Sometimes it is decidedly yeah. not, it's not guaranteed uh, a dominant crowd. No, guaranteed. And then it is always guaranteed that the opposition crowd on the road will be quite hostile. So I think, yeah, when you look at that trade-off, I think U.S. US fans should probably be okay with it. So we convinced then? We convinced with Bear Halter's reasoning yeah. here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. One extra thing he said um, as part of talking about that issue is that it also maybe he has to look at how the lack of crowd affects certain players. He said, mm-hmm. what players get easily motivated? What players don't need external motivation to perform? These are all things to consider. And I remember like nodding along as I read that and thinking, well, how do you find that out, right? I mean, and who hasn't looked motivated playing in an empty stadium. I can't say that I've seen any US player in the Bundesliga or the Premier League or at MLS's back looking um, under-motivated because there are no fans there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that would be you, though. And I think that's you taking it as a, like, well, they all look like they want to be there. Like, I'm sure behind the scenes, if you have a player who is grumbling the whole time about having to go play this game and why are we doing this, that's not quite the uh, the level of commitment you're looking for. I mean, you could extend that to what we were just talking about with Darlington Nagby, that if you know it's a player who isn't 100% focused on making that squad, and yes, I'm on the outside looking in, but I might one day be looking outside. Uh, if that's not your sort of mentality, then that might be the player he doesn't want. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And honestly, I don't see Darlington Nagby going away to Honduras in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, no, not so yeah. much. Not so much. I don't <laughs> think so. What else jumped out at you, Tyler? Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, a couple of things. I said one very quickly, but I wanted to go back to it for a moment. Yeah. Uh, the Intercontinental Playoff happening after the World Cup draw. I just thought that was a, a small thing, but pretty interesting. That seemed to be a thing that he was saying was going to be the case. Um, 
And so that means that if the United States finish in that spot, which is unlikely, uh, let's let's hope they don't. Uh, but that would be a slightly terrifying thing to then know what you're playing for and what you could stand to lose. Uh, but that will be happening after the draw, according to uh, Burhalter's comments. Oh, because you'll have seen like which group you would have mm-hmm. gone into and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it'll just feel that much more like. Oh, we even knew, like, we the, we saw the table setting, we saw all the food on the table, and then we were ushered to the door as our uh, the other party got to sit down and eat. <laughs> what, a, what a horrifying thought. Exactly. <laughs> Here's another thing that jumped out to me. Um, it seemed pretty clear that Bearhalter is still deciding exactly what to do at left back. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, except that maybe, based on the quotes that I've seen at least, one of those decisions is not to look at Anthony Robinson. Yeah, I think... Um, I think that might be like an accidental, like by the process of elimination, this looks bad because mm-hmm. so basically um, to, to give you the full context, listener, uh, this is all about uh, Belter was basically one thing is whether to decide to decide whether to have an attacking left back to like complement Christian Pulisic on the left wing or a more defensive left back to stay home and give Pulisic the cover. Right. That says that's mm-hmm. a thing that keeps me up at night every night in Orlando. Um, and then he also said that it would be all a lot easier if he just had a natural left footed attacking left back. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, he has Serginho Dest on his right foot playing left back. He has Tim Ream with his left foot, but as a more defensive left back. And he never mentions Anthony Robinson. Right. He mentions Sam Vines, Chris Gloucester, who's never played a professional minute um, and Chase Gasper. Um, and he doesn't mention Anthony Robinson, Anthony Robinson, excuse me, in this little cohort. But apparently, separately, when talking about players who've done well in Europe since the um, restart of soccer, since the pandemic, he does mention Anthony Robinson there. So I'm guessing it's just an oversight to not mention him as part of the attacking left back options, unless I'm missing something. My brain tends to like just like organize stuff into lists. And I almost feel like there's a list of like guaranteed to be in consideration, playing well enough to be in consideration and playing well enough. And I feel like Anthony Robinson is in that third group that he then didn't specifically list him. I feel like is maybe where he is in the estimations. Now that could well change, especially if he gets a move and continues to play well, then maybe we see him more. But I, I will read something into the fact that he was like, yeah, he's playing well. Here are the left back options that I've been thinking about. So like, I, I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but I do think maybe there's a little bit there. And here's his quote about playing the right footed Serginho Dest at left back. Um, quote, you can set it up in a way that can work, but all those issues would be solved if you had a really attacking left footed left yeah. back. Yeah. Well, that, mm-hmm. And that does suggest that Anthony Robinson does not exist, right? The last part of that quote. Yes, um, it does. It, it is also, again, it's Berhalter being clever and that he he keeps his options open. He says something interesting. He says something informative about how it can work. But he also makes it clear that, yeah, we would have to kind of set it up that way so that then when he does that, it will make sense. Like I, I thought his the answer there was, again, telling and not telling at the same time, which usually means it's a good answer from a coach's standpoint. <laughs> hey, this is future Daryl jumping in with a quick clarification. Um, there's also reporting by Paul Tenorio on, of The Athletic, who was also on that call. Um, and in Paul's story, uh, Greg Bearhalter does mention Anthony Robinson alongside those other left backs. So we might be getting all worried about nothing here. Let's just see how it all plays out. Oh, worth mentioning, now's as good a time as any, right, to mention that Wigan Athletic, um, because they yeah. only drew with Fulham and they got docked 12 points for being administration, they did not avoid relegation. They finished no. in the bottom three of the EFL Championship, but they do have um, one appeal they could make on July 31st, as I understand it. So it's not fully over. 
and in, and I kind of want Wigan to stay up so that the owners couldn't like do them over like they were trying to do. I don't think it affects Anthony Robinson's future either way, right? We we expect him to be on the way out either way. But it would be nice if he left having helped keep Wigan in the championship. Yes. Yeah, that would be nice, but we do expect him to leave. Uh, it, it's a when, not if, in my mind. Yeah. Maybe to West Brom, who were uh, officially hey, promoted. Let's make it today. happen. Yeah, Let's make it happen. Uh, maybe. Yeah, West Brom finished second, so they'll be going up as well. Um, do you want to talk Christian Pulisic? Because Berhalter certainly did. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so Greg Berhalter's big observation, right, was that essentially – if you'd asked him not so long ago how was Pulisic's first season in the Premier League, he wouldn't have. He'd have been like, eh, maybe, maybe not so great." Um, but now it looks like the best transfer in the world. I think is what he said. Um, and the thing he's really noticed is Pulisic attacking sort of the middle rather than being out wide all the time, and also getting used to his teammates. This is a direct quote: getting used to his teammates and his teammates gaining trust in him and having full trust. If you watch the games, you can see the dramatic shift in how his teammates relate to him. Now they actually look to him, whereas at times in the beginning, you're thinking, wait, why aren't they passing him the ball? I love that Berhalter has the same thoughts that all US fans on Twitter do. (laughs) Yeah, but but that is the thing we talked about at the time, though, that there was was frustration. I remember having that conversation like in November, maybe, about how it seemed as though his teammates weren't looking to him quickly. Uh, Recently, there was a thing about Kovacic, I think, like kind of checking off Pulisic to find another option. But back then, I do remember there being a lot of moments of like, he's open, that passes on, and they're not hitting it. So maybe it is Berhalter being a fan, but I think it is also him (laughs) being correct. And I think we do see them look more automatically to him and a big thing uh, we'll talk about later also sort of deferring to him on occasion which is certainly not a thing yes. I expected to be happening in September Ooh, let me just get this last bit of Behalter quoting because I think this is the Please. best bit um, this is about Ch- Pulisic's Chelsea teammates quote now they get the ball their first glance is to him he's really grown to be an important part of this group yeah and I'm sure uh, like Premier League supporting people who do not like the U.S. national team are thinking like, oh, that's that's just American favoritism. They don't look to him every single time. That's fair. Yeah. But they look to him a lot of the time and certainly more than they used to. And that definitely shows where he is in the squad. So we're definitely in the wrong timeline, right? This is the darkest timeline. <laughs> but yeah. it's the, oh, yeah. I think a little bit of the positive Christian Pulisic timeline has bled over into the nightmare that we're experiencing in the world. <laughs> I mean, but you can have the darkest timeline that then forks off into a slightly more positive timeline. And maybe we're there as opposed to the even darker timeline. Oh, yeah. I don't want to go there. (laughs) In that one, he's just just sitting on the bench um, watching Mason Mount take all his minutes, right? Give it like four more months and we'll see where we're at. Oh, anything else, yeah. Mr. Rockwell, before we before we move on? Yeah, I can't I can't believe we made it this far without mentioning Gio Reyna. Uh, we should probably talk about him just for one second. Never heard uh, of uh, uh, him. certainly has. Berhalter talked a lot about Gio Reyna specifically. But again, I think we sort of can't read anything too clearly into it aside from he's very good. He's played his way into that team. Dortmund used him in a lot of different positions, so he's given us something to think about. Yeah, he also talked about Dortmund challenging uh, Reyna. Mm-hmm and thinking of ways that we can challenge him with the national team. And I, th- yeah. to me, that seems like they're going to ask a lot of him, despite him never having played before. You know what I mean? Like, to mm-hmm. me, the challenge would be get your first international cap. Maybe Gio Reyna and Greg Berhalter are just more ambitious than I am. It, it, is, it is a strange of, like, of all the quotes that I could sort of be like, okay, I can see what he means here, and I wonder if that means that. This was the one where I was still like, how do we put him in difficult environments to help him grow as a player? Like, 
hexagonal qualifying, <laughs> trying to make it into a senior national team. Like those, those seem like pretty, pretty big challenges. So all I was left with was maybe he's talking about literally where do we put him in this team to get the best out of him to sort of demand that he raise his game as opposed to just kind of going through the motions. Even then, that feels like an over-interpretation, and maybe this was just Berhalter talking about a player who did really, really well, but maybe isn't even front and center of his mind right now because he's not playing, and there's many other teams that are. So he was going to be called up for the March friendlies, right? Right. And didn't Berhalter specifically, I don't have the quote, but he specifically referenced one of the challenges Dortmund laid down for Reynat was to play him in a three-man central midfield as opposed to to out wide. Yeah. So... That could be that could be where he goes. Although then that does seem like we're moving back to the number ten, since that's sort of what he was doing with Dortmund. Hmm. We shall see. It all gets confusing, see. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, final thing. He was mm-hmm. really. I find this really interesting. His quote on Josh Sargent was basically, yeah. "I put this on the club. They're not mm-hmm. giving him any chances. They need to. They need to sort of create opportunities for him. They need to get the ball forward more with through passes or crosses into the penalty box. It's basically like a big critique of Werder Bremen being terrible at attacking football, which honestly, having watched them, it's not wrong. No, it's not. But it's also really important. And this is where I think he's being smart with how he speaks in the media, that he's not saying like, yeah, you know, he had a pretty disappointing season. Some of that is on the club. Some of that is on the player. You know, we hope it's better next time round. I think he very clearly was coming out and saying, like, if you want to criticize Josh Sargent for not scoring goals, you can, but that's not his fault. Yeah. He is still very, like, I think he, he gave the resounding statement that was necessary if you were a young striker who didn't have a very good season. You are maybe already aware that things aren't great. You don't need to then hear your national team manager say, like, yeah, we kind of need more from him in that team. Yeah. So I thought this was another very good answer from Berhalter. I guess, yeah, if you take a step back and look at all this, this is, it's nice to get Berhalter's opinion on all kinds of things, but it's essentially mm-hmm. all positive stuff about US men's national team players. So yeah, part of, of the exercise might be just a morale raiser all round and a, and a little wink at Darlington Nagby, like to see if he's yes. interested. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Send a drink over to Darlington's table. A wink and a nudge yeah. for the elbow. Huh? 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 Come on. A round of drinks for his whole family. <laughs> uh, anything else from uh, Berhalter's press conference before um, we move on to talk Premier League? Just to say that since it was the source that I think we both used most heavily, um, I'll put a link to the Soccer America newsletter, if I can, in today's show notes. If it's mm-hmm. not in the show notes, it's because I couldn't link to it. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try, Taylor. And not that you forgot, for not sure. Not that I forgot. No, I never forget links. I never forget links. You, you never do. Never. You are good about your link, link retention memories. Yeah. 90% of the time, I get it right every time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we move on to talk some Premier League, today's yes, show is sponsored by Artifact. Artifact, who make personal podcasts for you to share with your friends and family and everybody else. Never heard of them, Daryl. What do they do? <laughs> I just told you they make personal podcasts to share with your friends and family. If you, have, uh, that's not good enough. Who do they ha- do they do they employ anybody we know? One of the co-founders um, is oh. named George Qureshi, um, which is weird because that's also the guy who used to be the editor of Howler magazine and the editor of the soccer section of the Athletic. Never heard of that either. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on that note. Thank you to The Athletic for uh, supporting the Total Soccer Show. Anyway, yes, uh, basically Artifact helps you kind of create curated podcasts is another way to look at it. Uh, and you could, say, preserve a memory of uh, your your grandparents' marriage. If they've been married for 50 years and you want to have different people talk about that or your, your parents or even your own marriage or anything else entirely, it can be a way to sort of preserve a story, preserve a narrative, or learn more about a thing that you might not otherwise know about. You could have people talk to your parents and record a thing about their marriage and what they've gone through that maybe you wouldn't otherwise know, but maybe they're inclined to tell a third party because that's sometimes how parents work. And it's not just old marriages. You can do it for new marriages or upcoming marriages. It's actually probably a really good wedding gift, right? If you know a couple that's going to get married, you could, if you're a friend of the couple, you could commission Artifact to interview maybe the couple's friends and just talk about what friends have seen of the couple. And it's a nice little celebration Mm -hmm. of their relationship up to that point. We had uh, we had uh, some friends of ours, Margaret, uh, my wife's cousin, uh, who was pregnant and couldn't do a baby shower. So they did a thing where they had a bunch of different people sort of say, give their well wishes, uh, record their well wishes, but then also give advice if they want to or give like an anecdote that they thought was particularly telling about parenting or about the couple. Um, and then they kind of put all that together. I think with Artifact, you could do the same thing with fewer people but over a longer period of time. And that could be another thing that if you're not going to do a baby shower or an engagement party or a wedding shower or what have you, you can kind of go that route. And it's at least a little bit of compensation and it would be very professionally produced this is true yeah this artifacts is true. set it up for you they schedule it they um you know they ask you the questions they edit it down they put nice music on it so it sounds really professional by the time it's done if you want to hear ours you can go to heyartifact.com slash tss taylor and i talking about the the foundation of no the founding of the total soccer mm-hmm. show and if you do want to do your own it's heyartifact.com and use the code tss to get $40 off your first artifact. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring today's episode. Again, that code is TSS for $40 off at heyartifact.com. Daryl, let's talk Premier League. Let's talk Liverpool-Chelsea, because I did not see this coming, uh, specifically the scoreline. I'm wondering if you were as surprised as I was. I'm, well, I'm going back, on, back and forth on whether Frank Lampard is committed to defending or whether he really is crazy Frank Lampard who just wants to... <laughs> to make every game wide open and see what happens. Um, I mean, I have an answer based on this game. (laughs) Yeah, based on this game, it's the latter, right? It's absolutely Mm. the latter. So yeah, um, Liverpool win 5-3. We're not going to talk about every goal. We'll probably talk about the Pulisic assist and the Pulisic goal, right? I think you can remove probably. Yeah, yeah. and 10% of our audience just groaned, but the other 90% were like, yes, let's get it. (laughs) Um, So here's the question I want to start with. Yeah. Why was this game so absolutely wide open? And I understand this was a celebration for Liverpool. They lifted the Premier League trophy at Anfield after the final whistle. But that celebratory mood was no guarantee that this would be a golf fest, especially with Chelsea needing points for the Champions League. So why was this game so wide open? Um, I, I think a big part of it was defences that, at least in Liverpool's case, are normally much more tuned in and focused were not that on the day. Uh, the stats would back that up. I think there were uh, the XG for this game in total was four goals. Obviously, they were double that. Liverpool's XG was .74. They scored five. <laughs> so I think right there that can tell you that maybe there was some questionable goalkeeping on occasion but I think also there were defensive mistakes that we yeah. wouldn't usually see I mean and chances even squandered within that because Mohamed Salah probably could have added two more if yeah. his finishing boots were on a little bit tighter but going the other way I would say this is the first time I've ever seen Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez run into each other right yeah yeah <laughs> and, and I guess and that's where like I, I I kind of drew the line here in the opening remarks but I'm wondering 
is that to you just sort of Liverpool? Like, we've won the title. We know where we're at. We're not taking it as seriously? Or is that Chelsea doing something that specifically threw them off? Because to me, it looked a lot more like the former than the latter. I'd go more with the latter. Um, okay. I, yeah, I, I, honestly, if these Liverpool players were not switched on, Jurgen Klopp would be dropping them left, right and centre, right? Curtis mm. Jones would be getting way more minutes. He'd be starting games. Um, Dejan Lovran would be starting instead of Van Dijk or Gomez if, they weren't, if those guys weren't performing to the maximum. So I, I really blame Chelsea more than I blame Liverpool. So then I think the thing I would then go with as my possible explanation is just that I was pretty consistently surprised by even when the scoreline was was fairly one-sided, it was still both teams committing numbers for yes. that you would have four runners ahead of a ball into the box with two trailing or three trailing. And it felt like there kept being numbers pushed up in a way that kept throwing the midfield off, uh, including I think for Liverpool's second or third goal, you have Chelsea in the shape that they kind of want to be in. But that shape is spread out a bit more than I think Like Frank Lampard certainly would have liked to have seen. And there's a good maybe 10 or 15 yards between the defense and midfield. And Liverpool will have, I think, three different players in that with the front three still ahead of them. Yeah. So it seemed like the dedication to committing numbers forward was something that caught maybe both managers by surprise, even as they were also doing it. And yeah, and here to put it in terms of uh, tactics and formation, I think it was really bold of Chelsea to go with that 3-4-3. Three, um, mm-hmm. And really have Rhys James wide right and Mark Alonso wide left, um, because when they were when they were build when Chelsea were building out from the back, right? Normally Liverpool do a really good job of making it so that you can't get the ball to your own fullbacks, right? They will sell out a money, will block it, um, but because they went with three four, so they already have three guys that can pass it around between them, and then two guys out wide. They were able to bypass and get to James and Alonso, and then those guys would would go forward. But eventually the ball would be turned over and would come back the other way. And then James or Alonso or maybe both would be missing. And then Chelsea right. would be outnumbered in central midfield because to get the 3-4-3, three, three, you end up with two central midfielders. So it was what, Jorginho and Kovacic. Um, yeah. So they're outnumbered in central midfield as well. So when the ball goes back the other way, it was a like a crazy scramble. Chelsea would often get numbers back, right? And kind of fall into a back five if Alonso and James could get back. Um, but that, I think that's part of the reason the game really did go back and forth and from one end to the other is, I mean, this is just the more complicated version of what you said, right? Which is that both teams really committed numbers to the attack in both directions. Uh, yeah, I, I think I am with all that said, I am still not surprised that Liverpool won. Obviously, they're Liverpool. They've been quite good this season. <laughs> but also, I do think uh, Kepa factors into this one in a way that. I think for the longest time I've been trying to figure out, like, what is it? What What is going on with him that Frank Lampard just does not trust? And I think there were a lot of issues on display today. Did you see the one? Uh, I, I, I missed it live. I only saw it because there's, like, an individual highlight of it, of him not coming for a cross, and the whole yeah. team basically turns and screams at yep. him. Yeah, that was telling to me that I think maybe he is like you could make the argument that maybe he's not as good as the, like his price tag would suggest. But I also think you cannot dispute that his level of confidence is so low that when you see a goalkeeper so hesitant to come off of his line like that and so just hesitant to commit to things, I think it speaks to how poor his confidence is and I would be really surprised if we see him play again this season and (laughs) I also would not be surprised at all if we see him at the very least loaned out somewhere else next year because it does not seem like a break and then going back to this Chelsea team is going to do anything for him that's interesting I agree with you that the money doesn't matter right the money's spent Mm -hmm. so it it really doesn't matter it's really just is he is, is he useful for you in goal or not 
<laughs> um, is, yeah. is basically what matters. Yeah. Yeah, because like, even on the Trent Alexander-Arnold free kick, which I watched many, many different times trying to figure out, like, does Kepa get this wrong? It seems like he is lined up too far to his right, but then I think he is trying to, ju- like adjust for the closeness of the of the of the where the location is going to be for the free kick combined with how good Alexander Arnold is at sort of getting dip but getting power behind it he also has Liverpool players in front of him but I still am left thinking yeah maybe a step or two over to the left and he's in a better spot and I think again that's the type of thing that probably Frank Lampard is looking at and thinking I just don't have the confidence that maybe he's in the right spot maybe he's not but for me personally Daryl it just feels like I I don't have the faith that nobody else could have said that that's an unsavable shot I keep going back to ah, but maybe he could have gotten it maybe he could have done better there and that's certainly not what I think Chelsea fans would like to be worrying about anymore can we talk Trent Alexander-Arnold for a second let's do it this free kick and then his cross for the Firmino goal mm-hmm. I, I think are more evidence for my theory that Trent Alexander-Arnold is the David Beckham of the 2020s uh i i would go so far as to say it is evidence to me that he is very good (laughs) and i don't know if you've thought about that yet there i know you might disagree but it's where i am but you with me like the the especially the cross for obviously obviously a bendy free kick is very beckhamish right the way that Mm -hmm. the way that ball uh went sort of up and down over the the edge of the wall uh and into the corner but what really looked beckhamy to me about the cross to firmino is that alexander arnold does it from deep Right, he's got mm-hmm. that Beckham skill. If he doesn't have to get to the end line, he doesn't have to get far down the sideline. He can be reasonably deep and still have enough, uh, like enough of an angle and enough bend on it to evade the defense, but then land on top of his striker's head. And uh, I think I said earlier it was the first or second goal where there were the gaps in the Chelsea defense. It was this goal, uh, and it is Firmino basically starts his position in that gap, and then by the time he is getting to the center backs who are now trying to deal with him, he is at full speed. They're not going to be able to keep up, but it would be. It wouldn't matter at all if it weren't for that pinpoint delivery from deep because yeah. it kind of gives Chelsea this impression that they can step a little bit higher, that they can kind of handle that when the situation presents itself. But when that ball is as accurate as it is, they can't really handle it at all, and it ends up in a goal. All right, and we're not going to talk every goal, but maybe let's talk the first goal, the Naby Keita 23rd-minute goal. Cause I think you, oh, you mean Jurgen Klopp's thesis statement? Yeah, you texted me like, yeah, yes. this is the thesis statement for Gagan pressing, which yeah, yeah, I 100% because- agree with. It's, I can't remember if it's a blown cross or, or whatever the situation is, but it's basically Chelsea get the ball, Liverpool apply that pressure, Chelsea hoof it clear, the ball is won by Liverpool. Yeah, and then it's, it's Willian kind of collects, and again, you have Naby Keita really aggressively stepping to it, but it's that, it's that idea that the, your opponent is most vulnerable when they themselves are trying to counterattack and lose that ball. That's like the, one of the key points of Gagan pressing is because that's them committing numbers in a sort of improvisational way that if you can... Can win that ball back and be aggressive on it you are more likely to catch them out of position or in a state of transition yeah. where they then aren't as quick to get back and that is basically exactly what happens it's <laughs> Nabi Keita steps really aggressively wins that ball drives forward with it and then punishes before uh, the defense can respond I loved that goal. most telling to me is it's not even a straight up tackle right like Keita sort of mm-hmm. gets him on the first tackle but Willian rides yep. it and still has it but he's so and I think if Willian is a really cool calm player right who's very good mm-hmm. at sort of picking things out as we go think of his like um, pass before the pass yep. that he put down the line for Aspilicueta in the, the Manchester United game right mm-hmm. um, but in this moment He's, he sort of gets half tackled, rides the tackle, and then he's trying to lay it off to, I believe, I believe it's Mason Mount. And he just mm-hmm. plays one of those passes that's off target and falls short, right? Which is really rare for a high-end Premier League player. But I think that really speaks to how much pressure he's under. That's what the Liverpool Gagan press can do to you. 
It does. And I want to like highlight one other thing, one other aspect of it, because I think it's important for a conversation we're definitely going to have in a moment. Uh, but it's also that you have, I believe, Wijnaldum has stepped in when Willian is trying to figure out what to do. And Wijnaldum has gotten close enough that he has closed off options to Willian, that he has made his presence known, but is not overcommitting, is not going diving in. And then if he gets beat, now there's space behind. And I think his positioning is really important to Willian not having options. So he has to take an extra touch and tries to play that ball. And it ends up being a misplaced pass, but I thought that sort of the presence and position without overcommitting was fundamental to that first goal, as was a hell of a strike from Navi Keita. So you want to talk some Pulisic? I do. All right. So <laughs> 59th minute, yeah. Christian Pulisic comes off the bench. Mm-hmm. 61st minute, he's assisting mm-hmm. Tammy Abraham and yes. pulling one back for Chelsea. This, I mean, I have thoughts, Daryl. I have thoughts. This got a lot of attention, not just in uh-huh. US men's national team circles, right? right. This, and I'll be honest, I'll, we'll get into it in detail. This, for me, is the moment he actually started to look a bit yep. like Eden Hazard, where Agreed. he's Agreed. created something from absolutely nothing and burned and embarrassed multiple players at once, right? That's what I remember yep. about Eden Hazard in a Chelsea shirt. And brilliant as Pulisic has been over the last few weeks. Um, this moment is for me is like the moment where he went to the next next level. There, there. It's it's sort of perhaps this is too harsh. I don't mean for it to be that way, but like it's the difference to me between a workmanlike performance where you can get two goals or three goals if you're Pulisic, uh, but you're sort of like it's like he's in the right place at the right time. He cuts inside, he gets the shot off. It's it's all technically well done. It's the difference between being workmanlike and being incredibly creative and spontaneous and there's that moment of improvisation that i think to your point is very aiden hazard-esque it's, yeah. it's cleverness on the ball but then incisiveness of knowing exactly what to do when you spot that opportunity i'm with you i thought this was a a potential watershed moment you know, even as greg berhalter then said let's not get overhyped about him let's not blow it out <laughs> this of proportion before he, saw this. he might not play exactly yeah <laughs> i think after that he's like never mind hype it all all you want bring back bring back the ballon d'Or. <laughs> um, so yeah so if you, if you haven't seen it Pulisic collects it on the left wing uh, yeah. Marcus Alonso is making a run ahead of him Pulisic isn't really interested in that um, as soon as he receives the ball right he takes one t- I think he's like 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 uh, what do you call it like open hips like butt to the touchline kind of as soon yep. as he receives the ball first touch is to like go right he's going um, he gets away from whoever's trailing him. I want to say it's Wijnaldum. Yeah, that would that would be Wijnaldum. Yeah. And and right there, I just wanted to jump in. Sorry to break your narrative, but no, I'd, I'd nearly gotten started. Is, it's a it's 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 a it's a moment that I think is easy to get lost because his dribbling is so precise and and excellent. But it's also a thing that when a striker does this, we praise them. Is that in that first touch or the second touch, he cuts across Wijnaldum yes. with. Like between with his body between the ball and the defender, who then has to slow up, or they're going to get a yellow card. There's yeah. going to be a foul there. But it's a really smart move because he completely takes a player out of the equation by doing that, and also sets himself up to then drive at goal. So I just wanted to spotlight that because it was one of my favorite moments yeah. of this play. So let's do this Kill Bill style, right? We'll cross people off mm-hmm. as we go, right? So Wijnaldum sure. is crossed off the list by that yep. first touch, and Pulisic put in essentially his entire body and his back to Wijnaldum, right? Mm-hmm. So he can't do anything. Next up, he faces the double threat of Trent Alexander-Arnold and Fabinho. Normally yep. one of those guys is going to tackle you, but what Pulisic yep. does is basically two quick touches in succession. I want to say it's left foot, right foot, and just like swerves between the two, right? 
He does. And this is, in as much as I said the first Liverpool goal was a sort of like the thesis statement on Gagan pressing, this was almost the what not to do in Gagan pressing. Because we know Jurgen Klopp wants his team hunting in packs, but he does not want them over committing. It's a thing that we've seen teams do with Lionel Messi, that if you have three people try to defend him, but all of them are 70% going in, then no one is going in 100%. And it's the diffusion of responsibility. And I think neither player here wants to be the one who's making a full effort or feels like they're in a position to do so. Yeah. But they have the other one there. So I think they both feel a little bit strength in numbers, but that's almost when you're more vulnerable. And because of that, they're both sort of not committing, but committing at the same time. Pulisic is 100% committing and I think spots that little gap and exploits it and gets right into it. The way he does it is he takes one touch, say, away from Trent Alexander-Arnold. So TAA thinks, all right, Fabinho is dealing with this. But then very quickly, the next touch goes back the other direction away from Fabinho. And then it's too late, right? Because he, Mm -hmm. it's almost like there was a very narrow gap that he navigated where no one fully took responsibility for him. Yeah, and and I know like when, when we say switched off, that can easily sound like oh, like you just expect the player like their power goes off and they just stop, and th- you can't have that. Uh, it's rare, but I think what I mean is why you shouldn't like, sign I think robot you, players. It, it definitely because then you you hack the system from above. We know how Independence yeah. Day went, um, but in this case <laughs> that doesn't happen. But what I do mean is that if you're if you're defending and there's just that moment of like oh, okay, I've shown him wide, it's somebody else's responsibility. It it happens very quickly, but you can have that moment of like, okay, where else do I need to be now? Is there another thing? Oh, no, he's still mine. And like just that little taking your attention off of him for a half a second or a quarter second is what I mean when I say switched off because with this skill level at this level – it can be punishing, and I think that is a big part of what happens here. Up next, so we cross Trent mm-hmm. Alexander off the list. We cross Fabinho yep. off the list. There's three down yep. already, um, there's still, but there's still a ways to go. Up next, Joe Gomez crosses himself off the list. <laughs> <laughs> Does Pulisic deliberately nutmeg him, or is this just all a bit of an accident? Uh, it is deliberate in terms of the nutmeg. I think it's Joe Gomez, again, thinking, there are two defenders in front of me. I'm going to shape up to be sort of the covering defender. And I think does not expect to suddenly be 1v1 with Pulisic. And I think basically just cannot adjust in time, is sort of already body committed to be going the way he is, and then can't close those legs in time. And Pulisic is full head of steam going at him. But it does also, I think it touches somewhere inside Joe Gomez's legs, right? So Pulisic gets a little bit lucky here because this ball could have, you know, bounced the other way. Off no, he Joe meant Gomez. to. He aimed it. He, know, he knows his angles. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean... it's like putt, putt. <laughs> he knew the angles of Joe Gomez's boots. Yeah, yeah, he did. He definitely knew the exact measurement of Virgil van Dijk's foot. <laughs> well, hang on. We haven't fully crossed Gomez off. He's gone. Okay. Right, he's crossed off. Now all that's left okay. is the final boss. It's, uh, it's Virgil yep. van Dijk. Um, and Virgil van Dijk, to be fair, is between Pulisic and Tammy Abraham, right? So yeah. how does he beat the final boss? Uh, with an incredible <laughs> amount of technical ability. Bill van Dijk, is who this is. <laughs> yeah, yes. First of all, that needs to be a name for a baby. <laughs> Second of all, uh, th- this is a moment, I think, where you, where I at least felt like that is a thing that Aiden Hazard could do that I've not always known that Christian Pulisic could do. But this is a, a literally inch-perfect ball because he puts it... Virgil van Dijk is in the correct position. He has taken up the right position. He has closed the distance. He has cut off Tammy Abraham to the best of his ability while narrowing the shooting angle. And it is just... 
excellent passing vision and technical ability to put it just out of the reach of Virgil van Dyke, but then just out of the reach of Adairson, who, excuse me, out of Allison, who could easily come out and make this play if it's two inches further inside, two inches further towards the goal. And it's just so well placed. That was the other thing that I loved about this sequence. It's the, it's cutting off Wijnaldum, but then it's this final ball that I think is just so very impressive. So one thing people have been asking, Taylor, is since Pulisic's so good, why why didn't he start the last game and why was he coming off the bench this game? Well, because Frank Lampard doesn't like him and because yeah. he likes Mason Mount more and Willian more, and so Christian Pulisic will uh, never start a game again. That's the obvious that's, answer. That's the most common answer I've seen. But you it's and usually, I both it's know. usually said not as calmly. <laughs> it's usually yelled in all caps, usually. <laughs> you and I both know that um, Christian Pulisic didn't start the FA Cup game because he was injured, right? Mm-hmm. That is yeah, correct. That was, that's a Frank Lampard quote, right? Is that we that Pulisic was injured. Apart from that, we've got a very strong team. Yeah. Um, so this is just Lampard easing Pulisic back in. And I think I feel the same as I did um, with the FA Cup game, which I, I like Lampard as a steward of Christian Pulisic's health. I concur. <laughs> like I trust him that he was good for 30 minutes. I also, because I've got one eye on this, it, I'm hoping it means that Pulisic is back to full fitness, full 90-minute fitness, um, by the time the FA Cup final rolls around um, on August 1st. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to hope for. And I think it's also, like, I understand why people get nervous when Christian Pulisic doesn't start every single game, but there's no way Frank Lampard sees what he has done recently and takes away from it. Yeah, maybe he's not good enough to start. Like, I, I wouldn't go that. I think we're, I really do think we're out of that realm for at, at least until there is a like an obvious downturn in form i think we can assume that if he doesn't start a game or two it's because he needs a time to recover or it doesn't just quite fit with what lampard wants in that moment but he'll be back in the plans the next week or the next game so i think uh for the most part i am no longer concerned about if he doesn't start a game or two in a row so beautiful assist from christian pulisic and yes. about 10 or 15 minutes later Christian Pulisic gets himself a goal. I believe this is the goal where Van Dijk and Gomez run into each other. It is. It is. <laughs> Can we talk? I also think this is um, a praise Trent Alexander-Arnold before. Um, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure this is the downside of Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? He's one of the two that gets beaten by Pulisic on that yep. dribble. He also, because Van Dijk and Gomez are out of the play, he's the last defender here, right? And Pulisic, mm-hmm. I believe, receives the ball with his back to Trent Alexander-Arnold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he like fakes to turn one way. And the commentator mentioned this, and I kind of believe I agreed with him at the time. Um, that essentially he just buys the idea that Pulisic is going mm. to um, Trent Alexander Trent Alexander Arnold's right. And my over analysis of this would be that moments before that, it's a pretty similar sequence, except he scuffs his shot yes. wide, and Tammy Abraham definitely has a word. And the only other thing I thought in that moment was that Tammy Abraham is in a very good shooting position here, and I did wonder if maybe Trent Alexander-Arnold was like, ha-ha, he's going to pass this time, and just tries to cheat a little bit. Uh, that's probably too much, but I did think that it was interesting that Pulisic, Pulisic doesn't drop it that time. He again turns and gets that shot off, and I'm going to say rifles it. Maybe not quite Mason Greenwood's it, but he definitely hits it pretty <laughs> <laughs> he certainly does. So Pulisic finishes mm-hmm. with a goal and assist, but a 5-3 loser because Chelsea yes. played this one wide open. Um, here's, what, here's what this does for the table. Chelsea are still in the Champions League spots, um, but they are not as comfortable as they once were, right? They're in fourth place mm-hmm. with 63 points, level with Man United, who are in third place with 63 points, and just a point ahead of Leicester City in fifth. So... Christian Pulisic may not be playing Champions League football next season. We have to see how the final day of the season goes. 
I have I have faith he will be, but I have one more point I would like to uh, to make about uh, his performance on the oh, day, yeah, if you don't mind. Um, for that first for the first uh, moment that we talked about with his assist, not the first goal, obviously, uh, but the assist to Tammy Abraham. Abraham does a good job of sort of staying open, staying in a position to pounce on that shot, but also staying on side. And it's very close, but he does it really really well. And I did find myself thinking that, like, for those who continue to wonder why Giassi Zardes is part of the national team, like, that's a Giassi Zardes goal mm. of staying on side, being mobile, being in the right position, and scoring a tap-in. Like, that is what I think Greg Berhalter wants from Giassi Zardes. And it just stood out to me that, like, yeah, if you've got Pulisic doing that and you've got a person there who can open space, run into it, be aware of where they are, and hopefully capitalize, I think it explains a lot of why Giassi Zardes is, uh, is still in those conversations. One more point in favor of Giassi because I know people yep. won't be agreeing with us when we when we praise him. Right? Yes, they will. I, I understand there are occasional loose touches. I understand there are occasional missed chances. I'll mm. bet you you've never seen a Giassi game where you don't remember him playing, right? Because there are some strikers True. who just kind of stand up top and disappear, and then you're sort of like, mm-hmm. oh, that guy was there. Jesse Zardes, even though there's, there's like bad, bad stuff that you remember, it's because he's constantly moving, constantly looking for space, constantly looking to exploit space, constantly looking for opportunities, constantly looking to connect. He is energetic, hardworking, and smart about where he runs, right? So mm-hmm. that's why everybody values uh, playing alongside Jesse Zardes and why coaches like Berhalter value Jesse Zardes. And while we uh, give people an opportunity to scream into their headphones, uh, should, we, uh, should we conclude talking about this game and instead talk about today's sponsor? Today's show is sponsored by HelloFresh, where you can get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonable, rec- seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Um, seasonable mm-hmm. is not a word, is it? <laughs> it isn't, but I like it. I like the approach you're going with. Uh, I also really enjoy HelloFresh, and I specifically enjoy the pre-measured ingredients that you mentioned there because it can be really stressful with meal planning, grocery store trips, to kind of know exactly what you need for exactly the right recipe. I also tend to be a person who's like, well, we're both going to want an extra ear of corn, so maybe we need some extra, but then you never end up actually eating it, and suddenly you have an entire refrigerator full of Tupperware containers, some of which are more moldy than the other. Uh, <laughs> with HelloFresh, you will not have that because it's pre-measured ingredients. They are the exact amount you'll need. Maybe you'll have two things of Tupperware for like leftover or something like that. But that's it, Daryl. You can just use those and rinse them out and you're good to go. So it'll stop Taylor over shopping. Pretty much, which is an important <laughs> thing. It definitely is an important thing right now, which also means that I'm probably using less, wasting less, which means uh, my like using a slightly smaller carbon footprint. And then HelloFresh's carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. So again, we're helping out there as well. Ooh, it says in the copy here, the source is the University of Michigan, which mm-hmm. uh, that's where my wife went. So it's a, it must be a pretty good school because she seems... Go smart. Wolverines, woo! <laughs> Excuse me, go Wolverines, rawr. Rawr, yeah, indeed, like, yeah. That's, yeah. Their, that's mm-hmm. their famous chant, rawr. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we all know it well. <laughs> the HelloFresh setup is also nice and flexible, right? So you can change your delivery days. You can change the sort of size of the package you're getting. Um, it makes it really easy to feed the whole family with larger mm-hmm. box sizes and more servings for more savings. So if you would like to experience those more ser- servings and those more savings, I'm trying to make a portmanteau of my own, I think, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS. Uh, that's HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS. Use the code ADTSS to get a total of $80 off, Daryl, not TSS dollars off, $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details.
And that's HelloFresh.com slash 8080TSS and use the code 80TSS, 80TSS, to get that $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's show. Uh, One more game to discuss, uh, a game that maybe we thought might lead the way, but instead has gone to the back end of the table, Daryl. Let's talk about that game. So it's Manchester United um, hosted West Ham. It finished Mm -hmm. 1-1. Actually, kind of a decent result for both teams, but I'm pretty sure Man United would have expected to beat West Ham, right? Not least because mm. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer went with more or less the full lineup, right? So Luke right. Shaw's injured, so Brendan Williams played left back. I'm going to assume Aaron Wambasaka had a slight injury or is rested, so uh, Timothy Fosu-Mensah played right back. Everyone else is first choice, right? It's the Pogba Matic midfield, it's Greenwood, uh, Bruno Fernandes, Marcus Rashford, and it's Anthony Martial up top. Mm-hmm. And yet, it is. it's only 1-1. And yet, it's only 1-1. And for a good long period of time, it was uh, 1-0 in favor of West Ham. Manchester United pull one back, courtesy of Mason Greenwood in the second half. Do you want to talk about why this game was the way it was, or do you just want to go straight to that penalty? I want to talk about um, how West Ham made it so hard for Manchester United. Sure. Um, we we okay. haven't sort of um, conferred about this, right? But mm-hmm. my basic theory of this is they they went with the back four, obviously, but they kept Cresswell and Johnson, the left-back and right-back, pretty tucked in whenever Manchester United uh, got a lot of possession and got it in West Ham's final third, or you know, Man United's final third. Um, they kept yep. the full-backs tucked in, and then you have Declan Rice, and you have Suchek, and you have Noble all like at the top of the box, uh, basically making it really hard. And then what, what I thought they did really well, though, is not just having numbers back, they would then have Ogbonna or Diop like, step out and snuff out any danger that was developing, knowing that there were plenty of players still behind the ball. So you've got your centre-backs mm-hmm. stepping out really aggressively and winning balls and stopping things happening, um, which is normally quite a risky thing, right? But when you've got numbers behind them, it means that they can afford to do that. Right. And I think it can then leave you vulnerable if that stepping out isn't uh, like really well-coordinated and really well-together, which I do think is yes. partially to blame for where that uh, equalizer comes from. But the thing that I think you're absolutely right on is kind of tucking people inside and having those numbers makes it difficult to operate in that space. And I routinely saw Bruno Fernandes out wide. Yes. And he would kind of shift out wide to try to create overloads there. But if you're West Ham... If you're trying to choose between do we want Bruno Fernandes combining in front of the goal from 15 or 18 yards out or do we want him out wide trying to create an opportunity out there, you will take the wide play every single time. And to some extent, I think Manchester United played into that game plan a little bit and then had trouble yeah, playing out. because here's the weakness of Manchester United, right? Um, Greenwood um, is, a, is a left-footed player on the right wing, right? And Rashford is a right-footed player on the left wing. They're both trying to do the Liverpool thing, right, of coming inside. Mm-hmm. They're like a Salah and Mane combo. And it's been really working for Man United, right, to have them go and combine with Martial and Fernandez in the middle. But then when West Ham clog up the middle, the only space that's free is the wings. And Fosu Mensah and Brandon Williams, neither of them are particularly useful in terms of providing a real attacking threat, right? Neither of them are no, Trent I- Alexander-Arnold. So they West Ham kind of limited United to either those guys having the ball or Bruno Fernandes has to go out and try and help, try and bring some of his creativity over to one of those wings. Yeah, and this is a thing we talked about with the the Chelsea lost and Chelsea lost in the FA Cup. Is that Brandon Williams just he's not Luke Shaw? He doesn't have the familiarity both with the system and with Marcus Rashford to know how to combine with him. 
you would you could argue maybe that like another game he's got a little bit more familiarity there, but that's offset by Timothy Falsimensu coming in, who is not Aaron Wan Basaka. And I think again, you kind of have that breakdown. You don't have that those quick combinations and those overloads to create mismatches to then allow defenders to get pulled out a little bit, which then opens up that space. I think that's another fundamental reason why you didn't see as much strong attacking play from Manchester. United. I'd even argue that even if you do have the familiarity, they're just not naturally super attacking players. Players, right they're not yeah. Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson for example you know what I mean they can only mm. offer so much attacking threat and I think that might be one of the weaknesses of Manchester United that if they're gonna have uh, their quote-unquote wingers Rashford and Greenwood uh, concentrate on coming inside and playing centrally sometimes you're gonna need your fullbacks to be the uh, the source of an attack and maybe um, outside of Luke Shaw maybe no one really is that yeah and and I think then that gives you that conundrum, especially if you're going to Solskjaer, of we don't quite have it, but we also can't afford to sit everybody for the, the final game of the season that we definitely want to win. So uh, my guess is that his initial intention was to obviously rest Aaron Juan Basaka and then maybe get some people off sooner rather than later, and then he doesn't have that luxury. So I'm guessing he is not going to be too thrilled with the way this game went, even if they did end up picking up a point. Should we talk about the quick goals then? Or should we quickly talk about sure. the goals? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the first one is um, a penalty conceded by Manchester United it's a mm. it's a Declan Rice shot off what I think is quite a clever free kick like it looks like it's rolled for yeah. uh, Cresswell to take but then Declan Rice comes from deep um, shoots Paul Pogba puts his hands up and blocks it penalty kick is given uh, McKenna <laughs> Antonio scores mm-hmm. my working theory on this is basically that Paul Pogba saw it late and just had a reflex like put my hands up to protect myself yeah, I, I have it as uh, Paul protect the moneymaker Pogba. Yes, I, I think I think we have seen that before, and then he does get teased about it. Uh, he did apologize to the team for that reaction. I loved the Reddit joke that uh, maybe that was Paul Pogba uh, not being confident in David De Gea's ability from distance, so he just kind of threw his hands up in the air to uh, handle it himself. Are you with me, though, that this wasn't like he had a long time to think about this and made a bad decision? No. It was just suddenly there's a ball right next to your face and what do you do, right? Yeah. Um, even as a professional footballer, sometimes your reflex is, don't hit me in the face. Right. But I think it also then explains why it's not a red card because yeah. there, I did see some making that argument that it's a, it's a shot on the frame, that it's a handball in the box, so it's not a legit, legitimate attempt to play the I ball. I didn't know Graeme Sinesa so... was working today. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he was, and I'm sure he was seething somewhere if he wasn't. Uh, but yeah, here I think it's because you can make the argument that there's no way of knowing if David De Gea was going to save that or not. But more to the point is that it's not as though Paul Pogba knew that shot was going in and put a hand to it. It was a reflexive reaction, though it's a handball, though it needed, I, I think, 72 replays for them to confirm <laughs> that it was indeed a handball. Uh, I, I think it's still a yellow card and the penalty uh, is justified. So there you go. It's 1-0 to West Ham at halftime, thanks to that Antonio mm-hmm. penalty right at the end of the first half. Um, yep. Manchester United equalise uh, through Mason Greenwood in the 51st minute. This mm-hmm. goal was a miracle of um, finding space when there was no space, right? Every- Did you find it hard to know what was happening? Yes, I had to watch several, several, yeah. several Me times. Too. But I think the yeah. best way, listeners, think about it as... Everything we said earlier about the way West Ham were defending with all those numbers yep. at the top of the box and like being always having someone who was quite aggressive about stepping to the ball. They were like proactive and uh, numerically strong and really good at or mostly good at sort of holding an offside line. Most of those things were still in effect. 
But this is the one time when the combination of Man United's front three and Bruno Fernandes finally had enough movement and quick touches and quick quick ideas to get this West Ham defence confused. Yeah, and and uh, uh, the analogy I would go with is like it reminded me of, of the shell game where you know you like put a thing <laughs> under a cup and you move the cups around. Yeah. Like that really is what it felt like. It was like, oh, there's the, oh, no, I lost it. Oh, it's back there. Okay, oh, he got the ball and he scored? How did that just happen? Like it was really quick passing and I think that was a thing that was severely lacking from Manchester United's attack for large portions of this game. Maybe all of the portions except for this one moment. But that quick one and two touch and that is maybe what I'm talking about a little bit when I talk about the kind of familiarity and fluidity to know I can do this I can do that he's going to be there I'll play that there and then I'll get it back I think there was a lot of the current relationship between Martial and Greenwood was very much on display in this goal Greenwood has four possessions in this goal that is a lot four possessions he is so (laughs) heavily involved in this goal it's absolutely ridiculous I think he initially dribbles and then lays it off um then he gets it back and uh uh, lays it off then he has the, the the actual the the moment when this is broken open i think is when is it martial yeah martial passes it into him and greenwood just does the one time outside of the left yep. foot quick touch into into martial and it's in the box right so i think that's when west ham start to panic a little bit and start to converge right. on martial and greenwood really smartly takes that opportunity to just peel away from the crowd right it's like walking away from a crowd and then martial can play him in yeah and then it's not it's Kaiser not a bad Jose, foot. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Just sneaks away. <laughs> Except there's nothing. Oh, no, with Kaiser Soze as well, right? There's nothing wrong with his feet because yeah. Greenwood takes the re- spoiler <laughs> alert for usual suspects. I apologize. Um, Greenwood takes the really. I'm not sure that it's a spoiler alert. I think people who haven't seen that movie are like, "What? <laughs> what happens to someone's feet? I don't understand." Greenwood takes a really good touch with, with his left, and then bang, yeah. it is one-one. He can hit a ball. I'll say that. Like, I have heard people talk about his finishing and how good his finishing is and how it's just so smooth and everything else. It reminds me of, like, Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing that it's just like, you know, as he's winding up, this ball is going into the net and it fairly often is. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a lot to be feared from Mason Greenwood because the more I see of him, he just has more and more weapons, right? I know he prefers his left, but he's pretty two-footed. It seems like he can really hit it hard as you said and then Mm -hmm. as with this goal he's so good at just getting into tight spaces quick touches keep things moving it's the most that man united front three looked like liverpool's front three the weirdest comment i heard about it i would agree with that uh the weirdest comment i heard about it came from ole Gunnar solskjaer who i'm guessing was tongue-in-cheek sort of joking but he said like there are days when you can tell he's got enough rest and is up for it and there are days you can tell that he stayed up too late playing playstation (laughs) Today was like one of the rest days, I think he said. So no Fortnite last night. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> anything else to add? Made all the difference. Anything else to add on this game, Tyler? Uh, just that uh, I think you've already gone over the table, but one more time to reiterate, it leaves Manchester United in third. Uh, same points as Chelsea, but uh, a better goal difference with Leicester City in fifth, one point behind. So those two playing each other this weekend is going to be nerve-wracking television <laughs> for many, many people. Yeah, for those who don't know, the Premier League finale is this Sunday. Every game kicks off at 11 a.m. Eastern. The NBC Sports Network game is Leicester versus Man United because that's basically the game where something's at stake at the top of the table, right? United yep. can draw and take a Champions League spot. They can obviously win and take a Champions League spot. If they lose, it's very likely that Leicester take that Champions League spot, right? But then depends what happens in Chelsea Wolves in the other game. So there's quite a lot going on there. Yeah, and if if Wolves win uh, eight nil and Man United and Leicester draw, then I think Leicester get the spot ahead of Chelsea. But 
barring that unlikely situation, yes, it basically depends. comes down to Manchester United versus Leicester. Depends if Raul Jimenez, depends what he had for breakfast. This is true. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> One other team I just want to have, give a quick shout out to is Aston Villa, who had looked yep. like relegation certainties for the last two or three weeks. Aston Villa beat Arsenal earlier this week. They beat them 1-0 with a goal from Trezeguet and have finally lifted themselves back out of the relegation zone um, just by their level on points with 18th place Watford. They have a goal difference that is better by a factor of one, right? So they're on negative mm-hmm. 26, Watford on negative 27. But Villa have given themselves a chance going into the final day of the season. We both had a look at this Trezeguet goal, right? It's yep. a corner kick that kind of goes over everybody. Trezeguet was at the top of the box. He motors into the box and just hits it 1-0 to Villa, right? But we both mm-hmm. noticed that this is another little problem with Arsenal's set-piece defending. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a problem, I think, generally speaking, with the hybrid zone of sitting four people on the six-yard box, sitting three ahead of them, those three are man-marking, the ones on the six-yard box are kind of dealing with the ball when it comes into your zone. But what seems to happen is that if you have all three of those players that are being marked crash the near post, their marks go with them, the people who are in that zone who are in those areas tend to cheat a little bit forward, and it creates a ton of bodies at the near post and not a lot of bodies at the back post. And that's where Trezeguet was completely Mm -hmm. unmarked, right? I, I also think of it as like if you go with this like hybrid... Uh, zonal marking in the six-yard box and man marking like slightly higher up the box. There's always going to be someone who doesn't quite fall into either category, and that's what that's where Trezeguet was, right? He was in a position that yep. wasn't like quite threatening enough to be man marked, but also wasn't in anybody's zone to begin with. So as soon as somebody moves, like, uh, David Luiz, I think would have been defending the zone where Trezeguet ends up. As soon as someone like David Luiz gets drawn into the action, there's mm-hmm. just a big hole for an Egyptian to fill, right? Right, and it, and if you are not even saying that they draw it up that people are going to run on, maybe somebody will flick it on or maybe nobody will because of the chaos, it's not as though they draw it up that then you're waiting here to pounce on that shot, but it is it is the situation that you're sort of told you're in this area, generally speaking, and you want to be on your toes. Yes. And that is exactly what Trezeguet is here. He's in the right general area to then react to it the fastest and lamp it one time. <laughs> so uh, final day of the Premier League is Sunday NWSL uh-huh. Challenge Cup was today, but the second game hadn't been, uh-huh. hasn't been played, right, at time of recording. Nope. Taylor, I believe you will have a review of this game for me to listen to because I'll be on the road. That is I'm in Boston right now. I was here for treatment. I'll be on the road all day tomorrow. Um, so you found someone with infinitely more NWSL knowledge than I have. Yes, that is true. I would love to play along and say, like, no, not at all. But yes, Lori <laughs> Lindsay knows her stuff, has been doing the color commentary for these games, will be with me tomorrow afternoon. That show will be out tomorrow evening, uh, is the plan right now. I guarantee it will be good because the time we had Lori Lindsay on the show in Baltimore, mm-hmm. she was absolutely magnificent. So uh, yes. I'm looking forward yes, to it. Yes, I'm. As am I. I, I. It's always good to have the, uh, the reappearance on the Total yes. Soccer Show. That always makes me happy. <laughs> Anything else to add before I wrap this up? Nope. Then I will just say. <laughs> I, was, I was really trying to run down the list of do I have anything else? The answer is no. a definitive no. <laughs> yeah. But either way, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It is now 9.30. Listeners, thank you for listening. And Taylor and Laurie will talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.